You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations about the big issues affecting all our lives. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And big thanks to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I want to begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners and custodians of this land on which we live and work. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. Later in the show, I'm speaking with Julia Stockett. She's from the Save Western Port campaign, which is working to prevent energy company AGL's plans for a floating gas import terminal in Victoria's Western Port Bay. We don't want this project to go ahead. It has a lot of risk. The risk of explosion, leakage, freak weather event, system failure, software failure, human error. They're dangerous materials. It's a hazardous facility. There is not one this close to a residential community anywhere in the world. Julia Stockett, and we'll hear more later. But first up, I'm speaking with Maria Tanyag. Dr. Maria Tanyag is a research fellow and lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Prior to joining ANU, Maria was here in Melbourne at the Monash Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, and she co-led research on developing gender-responsive alternatives on climate change. At that time, she joined us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast to talk about her research, and I remember it so vividly because during the interview, a large black dog found its way into the studio, brushing up against Maria's leg. Now, because I'm a little bit nervous about dogs, I think I would have probably freaked out if that had happened to me. But Maria was mid-sentence and didn't miss a beat, just went right on making her point. When I spoke to her last week, I wondered if she remembered it. Because I remember coming into the studio as well with fond memories of being in the show. Do you remember a big black dog walking into the studio? (laughs) I was a dog. And the dog, Squishy, is very well, as far as I know. Today, Maria joins us to talk about a paper she's co-authored with Professor Jackie True from Monash University entitled Climate Conferences Are Male, Stale and Pale. It's time to bring in women. And Maria begins today by discussing the knowledge women bring to climate change and crisis situations. Women have very distinct knowledge sources. This is because they experience the consequences of conflicts and disasters, which are increasingly intersecting as a result of climate change. They have distinct experiences of the due to gender-based violence and also due to gender division of labor that cuts across not just in non-Western societies, but even here in Australia, we would know that there are gendered consequences. And we can link that back to the current crises with, with the health pandemic. But these knowledge of the distinct experiences that women have are also very much linked to their capacity to think about 
comprehensive ways of protection mechanisms, comprehensive ways of responding to climate change, and ultimately long-term visions of how we might be able to not just build back better, but actually thrive and flourish in a changing security context. Despite this very rich knowledge base at the grounded or everyday life level, we're not seeing that translate at the global level. And we argue that there's an accumulation of barriers around the knowledge that these women hold. We're not seeing global voices at these um, climate change and peace conferences because women at these very grassroots level are already facing barriers. One of the aims of the COP25, the Conference of Parties to the Paris Agreement, was working towards ambitious and gender-inclusive climate action, the need to integrate gender considerations into national and international climate action. But how likely was that to happen, given lack of women's representation at that conference? And that's a very important point to remind ourselves. There have been very positive commitments. There have been a growing recognition of the importance of gender equality as an indicator and measure towards building climate resilience. And at different national levels, we are also seeing real frameworks being um, established supposedly to promote gender equality um, goals as, as an integrated goal for climate change and climate resilience. However, these very promising commitments, which have been pushed for by a strong global women's and environmental movement, they are in a way being reduced to measures that are more bureaucratic processes. For example, ensuring that there is gender equality in climate change programming, often that's very much merely about bringing in women inside rooms of disaster planning or merely bringing women in decision-making bodies but they do not really have a real stake at the outcomes, no real concrete influence on agendas. Their presence rubber stamps these processes. So while we are seeing um, at the very top level these frameworks, there is still a lot more to do in terms of translating these frameworks into real outcomes. There's an important initiative, for example, on gender responsive climate financing. Ensuring programs such as renewable energies or building capacities for green energies are gender responsive. However, when we think about unpaid care labor or the amount of invisible labor that many women farmers are doing um, to support agricultures, often these are not um, financially rewarded or not part of the accounting of a broader scheme of climate financing. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Maria Tanyag from the ANU. Maria points out that the need for multiple sources of knowledge to address climate change is now well recognized internationally. The IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the most recent reports have stressed the importance of really harnessing multiple sources of knowledge. And there is a growing recognition on um, paper that we need to be listening to indigenous and local knowledge of climate resource governance. And this has been um, catalyzed itself by the scientific evidence that climate change will affect all dimensions of human life. We're talking about physical security health, food, energy, everything. And the security challenges will be so complex that we cannot rely on one source of knowledge anymore because quite simply, we are facing uncharted territory. People already, especially those living in very crisis-prone areas, have long adapted 
to a very uh, precarious or insecure environment. If you are living in a very um, resource-scarce environment, for example, places that have long experienced drought, the world can learn a lot from these communities. When we think about the bulk of, in, across many societies, who are in charge of food preparation? Who are in charge of survival of families and communities in times of crisis? It is largely women, through their role as primary caregivers, that have long adapted and innovated on food sources um, in times of crisis, that have long innovated and used in many communities, um, especially remote areas, herbs or medicines from the land itself, um, and curated that knowledge over hundreds of years as alternative sources of medicine. And again, there's a whole range of knowledge that we can find meaning and source of inspiration. But despite this knowledge, women are being sidelined at state level. As Maria Tanyag found out through her research in Vanuatu, the Philippines and Cambodia. We are seeing a gender light implementation and gender light implementation is really gender but without politics, gender without land, gender without economic resource redistribution, about adding women and stirring. What do you mean adding women and stirring? Add women and stirring is a feminist metaphor where as a token inclusion of women or gender in already established processes. So basically you don't really see a transformation. You're really just adding the women as a rubber or something that kind of indicates that you're being progressive, but actually substantively, you're not really seeing real change. The women that we worked with on these projects, they would say, oh, because of, for example, the gender component of a program, they would be asked to have 50-50 women and men in all meetings. But in the 50-50, women would only be there, but they will not be informed beforehand of what the meeting is about. They will not be informed about what are the envisioned outcomes of this climate change project that is being developed. And when you have the women there, they will give out everything that they think needs to be done. They will express their own knowledge, their uh, interests. And again, there's already a barrier there because in some cultures, women are expected not to talk. There are real um, prohibitive norms that when women are in presence of male leaders, they should defer and and not speak up, right? So once they've overcome that and they are able to speak up, they will find that at the end of that meeting, they will not hear back what happened. They will find out later on because the project will be developed and all the things that they said were not incorporated. So it's a gender light process because the women did participate. The women did say everything that they wanted to say, but at the end of the day, they will not have a stake and ownership of the outcomes. And that's what's also equally important, that the outcomes reflect the things that they wanted to say. And also that they do not come in with preformed agendas, where basically all that they could ever say is already constrained within, or this is only what we can talk about. So for example, again, back to the climate financing, you can only talk about where the money will go in so far as farm implements. They cannot say, for example, oh, we need to put money towards care facilities or supporting the the early child care facility. So again, the nature of the decision-making process matters because what women are able to say and whether what they say translates to actual outcomes are very dependent on the structure. And And I I quote from you here in in the report that you prepared for that gender climate and security um, report, you say that the transformative potential 
of gender analysis is undermined by box-ticking approaches. We see it at very village or community levels, as well as the, at the global level. At the national level, you rarely see women ministers of environment or women ministers of defense. And yet, these are key institutions that directly shape the nature of climate change and our capacity to um, redistribute resources towards building peace and less towards the war making and war fighting. So we're seeing women at conference of parties or at these global summits, but they're largely at the NGO um, non-state aspect. So what we know across the three countries is that they have gender um, uh, and climate change action plans. But these are broad statements, right? Um, we need to know more about the indicators. How is this being implemented? And, and research is showing that we have a long way to go in terms of substantive gender implementation. And that was Dr. Maria Tanyag, a research fellow and lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. The three countries she's referring to there are the Philippines, Cambodia, and Vanuatu, where she's done her research. Those things she describes, I'm sure for people listening, are all too familiar to women, but to other groups as well who experience that kind of marginalization with our society, that token representation. So many of us know what that feels like. And a big thank you to Maria for joining us today on Listening Notes. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes, and I'm Judith Peppard. And I expect you've heard about energy giant AGL's plans for a floating gas import terminal in Victoria's Western Port Bay. And it seems like this project is supported by the federal and Victorian governments. Julia Stockett is involved in the Save Western Port campaign, and she lives in the area. She spoke with me last Wednesday morning, and as I haven't been there, I began by asking her to describe the area. So this is Western Port Bay. It's actually east of Melbourne. It's the second bay, the smaller of the two bays on the southern southeastern coast of Australia. And Western Port Bay is a shallow tidal bay. It has some islands, Phillip Island, French Island, and it's got uh, several marine national parks. It's an internationally credited Ramsar wetland, critical to the survival of migratory birds. Migratory bird habitat being disappearing at a really alarming rate internationally. 
So the remnant sites have been listed on a category called Ramsar wetlands and Western Port was listed on that in the 1980s, so the early 80s. If you and I were going to go out for a walk there this morning, what would we see? Normal sort of beaches, golden sand beaches, we'd see uh, birds feeding and we would see possibly uh, local uh, resident pods of dolphins, which are beautiful. A lot of the area is coastal mudflat, mangroves. A lot of people sort of underestimate the value of mangroves, but they are a really significant species. Their capacity to store carbon safely underground for decades, it's at a rate of about 40 times as high as even tropical rainforests. So their ability to biosequester carbon is really significant, as well as having a, an intrinsic value as being nurseries to marine species and re roosting and feeding opportunities for wading birds and migratory birds. They have a potential financial value, which could be used in carbon credit schemes and that sort of thing. They are our most effective defence against coastal inundation and sea level rise. They also help to filter the runoff from the land, nutrients from fertilising from agriculture. The species of mangrove that grows here is called silver mangrove. I'm not sure of the Latin name. Silver mangroves are a tropical species and they are, this is the furthest south anywhere in the world that they grow because the waters of Western Port are shallow and quite warm. So they're a really special species. They are um, very, very rare. But Western Port is only about an hour from Melbourne, so it really is very close to Melbourne and it is a lot of it is very pristine. I just want to say, comment on what you just said because given particularly the bird life and interestingly during COVID-19, the number of people interested in bird watching has gone up. BirdLife Australia is getting more reports of people spotting backyard birds, so there is an increased interest. Do you get a lot of people coming down like for tourism and as bird watchers? We do. There's a lot of interest in the species of uh, birds that we have here. There are bird tagging programs on French Island. There are people that follow the birds on their migratory journeys so you can see these birds, they go up as far as Siberia, the far eastern curlew, which is a critically endangered species of migratory birds, come to Western Port every year to feed in the mangrove mudflats to rebuild their size. Amazing international flights right up to Siberia where they breed. Have you seen one? I've seen one in the wild. I have seen one in the wild. Consider myself very lucky. What's being proposed for Crib Point? The energy company AGL, which is Australia's biggest um, energy company, are proposing to import gas, LNG, into Crib Point, which is a coastal village in, on the western shores of Western Port. And they're proposing to import gas there. It's a floating storage regasification unit. So it's a factory ship. When gas is transported, it has to be frozen to minus 160 degrees Celsius. So in its frozen state, it would arrive in enormous tankers. Now, the tankers and the FSIU are about 295 metres long. So that's a third of a kilometre. Floating processing plant would be permanently there and very large ships would be coming in to unload the gas, frozen gas. You've got it. That's exactly what they're proposing. How would that affect what you and I would see? First of all, there'd be the visual impact of it, the noise of it, 
What would be the noise? The noise would be from diesel generators, which we believe would be running all of the time. I think that when AGL initially held information sessions, they said that they would need to get permits from the EPA because the noise would be above safe levels in the evening. So the diesel engines would be running all the time. Who or what is going to be impacted by that noise? Obviously, if any people live in the area, they would be. Also, I imagine marine life would be affected. This is one of our big concerns, Judith. Several hundred metres away is the nearest home. But the impact on marine life is really a big concern because Western Port is a home to marine mammals. It's the biggest fur seal colony in Australia and the bay is also a place of a shelter for humpback whales on their migrations south or north each year when they have their calves with them. So it's a fairly new field of study, but they know, for example, during COVID when the shipping has been a lot less, there's been a lot more whale activity, their speech, their communication. The impacts on fish of underwater noise is known to impact the way that they hunt, the way that they find their food and the way they navigate. It's not really known the extent to which industrial noise impacts marine life, but it is known to have an effect. And that's one of our big concerns because most of AGL studies that they have produced, and they've had to do an environmental effects study for this, They look at the effects on humans, which would be sleep disturbance and the oppressive nature of industrial sound in a location that's otherwise very peaceful. I'm speaking with Julia Stockett about the Save Western Port campaign. She told me that another big concern is light pollution. We're just that distance from the city where we don't have a lot of light spill from Melbourne. So the idea that we would have 24-7 industrial lighting at the beach there would be really intrusive to the people here and also to the nocturnal marsupials that live in the bushland all along the foreshore there and to marine ecology, marine life. And insects as well, which are also reducing in number and they're affected by light. Sounds like there's potentially quite a huge impact on the people who live in the area, the marine life and the general environment, tourism as well. Yeah, a really significant contributor to the Mornington Peninsula and the whole of Western Ports of Phillip Island, French Island, across the Bay at the Bass Coast, all very favoured tourist locations. And there are plans to optimise that, to have whale watching tours and really sustainable industry down here that could bring jobs and employment and support the, the people who live here. It's often cited that projects like this will bring jobs, but from what you're saying, a lot of jobs are threatened. The gas, once it comes ashore, and to get it ashore, they have to regasify it, which would use 450 million litres of seawater every day, would be drawn up into the tanker, into the FSIU, and used to thaw the frozen gas. So it would be chlorinated, it would kill every form of life in the water, and then it would be dumped back into the bay as effluent, chlorinated effluent, seven degrees colder, which could form cold water plumes along the bottom of the seabed. It could impact all the marine life, the invertebrates. And And possibly the mangroves. It's not known what the impacts could be. And that is one of the big concerns. We just don't know the losses we are potentially facing. What's the status 
of this proposed project at the moment? So the company AGL, the proponent, has to undergo impact assessments of lighting, marine impacts, social impacts. Environmental effects statement was released a few weeks ago. It's on public display. So this is 7,000 plus pages of technical reports that we have to comment on. That will go back to the minister and then there will be public hearings and then he will make his decision. We don't want this project to go ahead. It has a lot of risk the risk of explosion, leakage, freak weather event, system failure, software failure, human error. The hazardous facility, there is not one this close to a residential community anywhere in the world. We just don't think it's worth the risk. GL, the proponent, is puts the, the documentation together. That will go to the minister, Minister Wynne, who's the Minister for Planning in Victoria. The environmental effects statement is meant to be a really robust system of protecting the environment, but it's been eroded over the years. And there are real concerns about the process this time round, because the time for people to respond to the environmental effects statement coincides with the COVID-19 lockdown, and internet communication is far from ideal in the area. The community can't consult. We can't hold public meetings. We can't meet with our experts to talk about the documents. We can't meet with legal assistance at Environmental Justice Australia to advise us about the public hearings. So we've asked the minister to defer it because it would be procedurally unfair. The EES process is notoriously skewed in favour of the proponent. Each environmental effects statement is advised at the, at the public hearing stage by a panel who hear the submissions made by the public and by the proponent. It's a different panel for every project. And the minister selects the panel. There was a sense in the channel deepening in Port Phillip Bay a few years ago that that was really fought against very hard because of the impacts that people thought that would happen if the channel was stretched. And a lot of that's come to be, actually. The beaches have really changed in Port Phillip Bay and there's been a lot of impacts. There was a sense that the panel wasn't appropriately chosen to represent marine impacts or to have people with the scope of knowledge who can make an assessment like that. I mean, this obviously affects us all, everyone in Victoria. And if you take into account the migratory birds, it affects the whole world, really. It's a, it's a huge issue. What can people listening do? So Safe Western Port is a group of residents who were formed when we heard about this proposal a few years ago. We've been on this fight for going on three years. We have a website, Safe westernport.org. EES documents are there. We really are encouraging people to go on, have a look at the documents, make up your own mind. You don't have to read the whole thing. Choose a section that resonates with you. It might be social impact, it might be marine. Make a submission, become involved in this. The more submissions they receive, the better. Anyone who makes a submission then has the option to appear at the hearing later on in the year. We are a locally resourced community group, so we need to raise a lot of money to pay even expert witnesses who can drill down into AGL's technical reports that they've had two years to prepare. It's going to be locking in and promoting the burning of gas for the next 20 years or more at our local foreshore. Write to Minister Wynne and ask him to really consider this very carefully to tell him that people expect more now. Julia Stockett from Save Western Port Campaign. And check it out for yourself now that the environmental effects statement is up. You can see whether AGL has addressed some of the concerns raised about the community. And I'll put a link to their campaign on the website. 
Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. It's coming up to the end of the show. Thanks for joining us on Listening Notes today and to Dr. Maria Tanyag from the Australian National University and Julie Stockett from the Save Western Port campaign. Stay tuned to 3CR because Diaspora Blues is coming up next. Stay safe and I'll catch you next Monday at 2 o'clock here on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.